for yet another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour with my co-host, my esteemed co-host, Gadi Taub. I'm here in Chicago visiting grandma or mommy and uh, but uh, with my kids and my family. And Gadi, where are you? Imagine that I'm in Tel Aviv once again. Oh my God, shocking. How does Israel look from afar? Because we, we feel like we're living on a ship of fools here. I don't know if you noticed, but they are, are esteemed... Uh, foreign minister and how do you call it Sarahuta Rosha Mshala Khalifi the replace the, the what the alternate alternative prime alternate alternate prime minister it's an alternative world with an alternative prime minister he said that ever since they took power the mood here is great Havira the the atmosphere is great but because of course the press is not reporting anything that's not the atmosphere great. is wonderful So you feel like I, so I tweeted back that, you know, I, I, I mean, tweeted this, back this, that this, there, this. there's a great atmosphere on the upper deck of the Titanic here. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's the same thing as the press in the United States that they just don't they don't uh, publish news that's bad for them. I mean it, it, it's one of the sickest things about the media in our lifetime, which is that they no longer are about uh, providing information to, The public they're about pushing a political agenda and so here let's push back let's give some news let's let's yeah. do the right thing as to how it feels to be away from israel i have to say you know uh first of all i don't feel like i'm really away from israel because i'm on twitter <laughs> but but second of all um look you know i mean this corona thing has been has really taken a toll on people who have families far away you know so we're we're very very happy to finally be, be reunited with my mother after a year and a half. So that's the main thing that we're concentrating on here. And, uh, but let's go back to the Twitter universe, which is where the real news is. Yeah, yeah, there's no, speaking about the media, if I can, if I, if I may uh, open uh, um, in parentheses here and remark about that, because um, there's an analysis by Andre Mir, I think the name of the scholar is, which says that what basically happened to the media is that it moved from advertising to subscription. And in advertising, you're trying to reach the widest audience for your, for your advertisement. But when you move to subscription, and this is the interesting thing that he said, your subscribers not only expect to hear their own opinion, they feel themselves like shareholders in your newspaper. And so they pay you to promote the ideas that they like. And this is why, you know, when I write for, for, for Aretz, if you look at the talkback, they keep saying, why is he here? Send him to Israel Ayom. Why do we need to pay to hear this fascist idiot? And all that, because, because they feel like they're the owners now. And, 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 I'm, like, and, and I'm a stranger that, that invaded their, their house. But the whole economic model is now... Um, turning each each media organization into a propaganda organ. You know, it's interesting. Back when I was at Harvard, I read this article that really blew my mind out. It was right when people started talking about globalization. I think it was in 1998. And so this article was talking about how the elites on the coast, and they were talking about the United States on Silicon Valley and stuff, that they had more in, they had more in common with, with the elites uh, in Japan and uh, in Taiwan and in China and, and in Vancouver than they did with the people in Eastern California. 
And, um, you know, what you really see here is, you know, the, the whole globalization started balkanizing societies, dividing them into groups like you wrote about in your book, but it's also about something else. And now what we see is the fragmentation of the media. And when we grew up in America, there were three networks, plus maybe a couple of local news things and PBS, which is a lot more than, than we had in Israel where we had just state television. But today, and, and, but, and that really gave each generation a common culture, a common popular culture, we listen to the same radio stations. We listen. We watch the same television shows every every uh, evening on prime time, and and so there was a great deal more in common that Americans and that Israelis had with one another than today. When you have, a, like you said, this is a sub subscriber based not only media environment but also um, entertainment environment where people select in, select out different groups, and so somebody. You know, if you're living in a large city, then the people living down the hall from you in your apartment building or next door to you may be living in a completely different cultural uh, environment, reality, than you are because they're watching different television shows than you've ever even heard of. You've probably never even heard of a lot of them. And uh, you're not watching the same movies and, or anything. So you just don't have any. So that caused even further fragmentation and even more balkanization of societies and even more alienation between fellow citizens, one from the other. So yeah, I think it's true. And it's also demonstrably, I think, destructive to, to uh, national, to, to nation states. And to and democracy, to because there's no common discourse. And, and I, I noticed this in America because, you know, people like me and you have been following the uh, conservative media and and we we never bought into the russian collusion idiocy but but the people who read the new york times and the washington post have no idea that they had no idea that this is a hoax and if you enlarge that i have very intelligent friends in america who to this day are telling me that Trump had no policy. He had no Middle East policy and he, all these Abraham Accords, they just happen on by coincidence. They, so because if, the, if you are surrounded by a watertight media environment, which repeats the same message, this guy is an, an idiot and a buffoon and he doesn't know what he's doing. Then in the end, if you are not actively seeking information, then you don't get it. But the good, the good news is that it makes people seek, as they realize that this is happening, they seek alternative sources of information. And so make allowance to the fact that you choose the ones that you want to hear but then you then you you get on you get on uh telegram for instance and i i don't know if you follow this guy abu ali um i know say mike duran our friend is following him from from washington dc he he was some intelligence officer he just surveys the the you get you get un unprocessed uh, uh uh primary information through this guy who just follows the Arab media and translates things for you and, and, and memory does these, these things. So you gradually learn to mistrust all the intermediaries and look for the primary sources. And if you're, if you're an active, intelligent uh, news consumer, then, then you get things that you did not get in the days where there was one channel in Israel, three newspapers and one or two radio stations that produced news and they all told the, the party line.
And the truth is, you know, we exist, this podcast exists like thousands and thousands of other podcasts all around the world uh, because people are looking for information and they're looking for interpretation of information so that, you know, to a certain degree, not to a certain degree, in a very real sense, the reason that we're here today is because of the balkanization of societies and cultures and information transfer. So yeah, I mean, there's obviously an upside to this because we wouldn't have this wonderful show that you should all be subscribing to and sharing with your friends. And, and I wanted to protest you saying, I wanted you to protest you saying that there are thousands of thousands of podcasts like ours because there are thousands of podcasts, but they're not like ours. They're there much, none. they're not there as good. None, they're not. none, none. <laughs> so that's what's true. on, true. what's on <laughs> our agenda? So I think that the first story that has been underreported, or maybe even not reported uh, recently uh, this week, is the is a major uh, story coming out of Russia, which is that the Russians uh, have announced that they're no longer bound by the agreements, the arrangements that uh, then Prime Minister Netanyahu made with Vladimir Putin in 2015 regarding Israeli military operations in Syria. And if and I actually I wrote my column for Israel I am about this so people can read about it on my website after I write the English version of it. Um, but uh, the in 2015 in September, right, the Russians took advantage of the fact that the Obama administration was not going to be doing anything against Assad at that time. You know, even before that, all of the all of Obama's second term was dominated by his desire to appease Iran, which is the Which is the um, which is the boss of Syria, which controls the Assad regime. So when the when the uh, people of Syria began rising up against the uh, Assad at the beginning in in 2013 or 2012, actually um, the Obama administration talked a lot, but they did nothing because they didn't want to harm what Obama referred to as Iran's equities in Syria. So he had made this thing in 2012 when Assad started gassing his people. He said, "There's a red line." And if he crosses it, we're going to go in and we're going to take action against him. What was the red line? Use of chemical weapons against his own people. In 2013, he passed that line. He, he attacked his people with chemical weapons. And Obama did nothing because he didn't want to alienate Assad's bosses, the Iranians. And so he broke his red line, lost all credibility. Uh, as a, he, lost, he destroyed America's credibility as a, as a superpower in the Middle East. Putin saw that Uh, everything was open for the pick. And so when Assad gave him a good enough offer, he brought back Russian forces into Syria in September 2015. Assad offered him basically the sky and the earth and everything in between in order for Russia to come in and save Assad and Iran and the Hezbollah forces that were operating with them because they were being attacked both by ISIS and by other uh, uh, Sunni a militia that were trying to uh, trying to fight back against us. And so Russia came in and they operated as the air force for the Syrian Hezbollah Iranian army. And Israel had a big problem because from the very outset of the of the events, Israel was attacking Iranian uh, weapons shipments of smart bombs and smart bomb kits that they were trying to transit through Lebanon, through Syria and bring to Lebanon. And uh, when the Russians came in, suddenly we were faced with the specter that Uh, you know, we would lose aerial superiority and 
any continued efforts on our part to block Iran from transforming Hezbollah's military forces into something sort of like what we're seeing in Houthi-controlled Yemen, where they have smart bombs and they're able to uh, conduct uh, precision-guided uh, missile attacks against Saudi's uh, oil refineries uh, and installations. Um, that we were worried we were going to end up with that in Lebanon, because if we tried to block the weapon shipments, we would find ourselves at war with Russia. So he ran to Putin, uh, Netanyahu did, and over a series of meetings that they held over the next several months, they arranged this coordination deal where Israel would coordinate its sorties in Syria, you know, five minutes ahead of time or whatever with the Russians and tell them well, we're going to be in this general area so that the Russians would know and they wouldn't attack the, the Israeli uh, the Israeli uh, attackers and Israeli airplanes and so on and so forth. And this, it was a monumental achievement on Netanyahu's part because why would Putin agree to step back as Israel was attacking his ostensible ally, Iran, and Hezbollah, who's, who's fighting a war with? Um, and the reason why Netanyahu did it, I mean, was able to do it, he was able to do it because in March of 2015, he established himself as, you know, one of the top international leaders in the world when he went to when he went to Washington and he gave his speech against the Iran nuclear deal before the two houses of Congress. So he made this big speech. Everybody was amazed that an Israeli leader would go and attack the 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 Obama administration's central policy in its own house, in its backyard, in in Congress before all members of both houses and explain why it was a devastating blow to Israel and to US national security. So he did this and the Israeli security establishment opposed it because they were terrified. But what happened at the end was that the world incredibly you know, admired him and the Republicans admired him. And he changed the world basically by going there. And he changed Israel's status in the world from one that people looked at us as this you know, satellite state, this vassal state of the United States into what was perceived rightly as a regional power. And it was because of that stature that Netanyahu achieved in March that Putin was willing to take him seriously when he arrived at his doorstep and he said, look, you know, if you don't let us keep fighting the Iranians, you're gonna get harmed by it. And let me tell you why. It was because Putin said, oh, this guy is serious. Let me hear what he has to say. And so even though the Russian militaries opposed the deal because they're anti-Israel, Putin said, no, let's go ahead with it. And and it worked, you know, from 2015 to 2021. Granted, there were four years where we had unstinting support from the from the Trump administration, but Israel's been able to operate in Syria without risking a confrontation with Russia, which is an incredible achievement. And so now this week, with no prior warning, really, the Russians just announced this is over. And you want to give me an, you want to give me an explanation for why that might have happened? Um, first of all, it happened because because of the ch changing winds in Washington. Um, but but we have the politicians over here are in no position to uh, oppose Washington, and therefore um, they're hardly in a position to convince Russia. But I'll say for them, which is a, I, I don't do this often, as you know, that that once you take Trump out of this equation, everything changes because Netanyahu's credible threats, whatever they were in detail. Also, in, of course, he didn't have to say it, but it was it was clear that Trump was strongly, strongly opposed to 
um, to, to hindering or to tying Israel's hands. And, and people forget that the Trump administration, with all this Russia collusion idiocy, Trump administration was a thorn in Putin's side everywhere and always, no matter where you look, whether you look at the Nord Stream gas deal between Russia and Germany, which Trump put a stop to, or you look at what Trump did inside Syria, or the fact that he blocked Putin from getting the, the big prize for which I believe he started this war, which is the, the, the uh, Western Iraqi oil fields. This is where Trump kept his forces and blocked the way. So, so it, was, it was much easier for, it, for Netanyahu to play with these cards when he had, so to speak, the Trump card. You're right. But the a deal that he made with, with Putin, he made when Obama was president. And that was at a time when not only was the American government not supportive of Israeli strikes, but they were leaking the details of those strikes to the New York Times on a fairly regular basis in the hope of uh, deterring Israel from maintaining them. So it, it was Netanyahu's achievement was made under Obama. It was secured absolutely because of Trump's wholehearted and complete support for Israel. So I think you're right on that, but I think that it's also true that uh, it's because my my argument anyway in the newspaper is that it is the 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 deal was secured because Netanyahu had developed his own credibility and he had presented Israel as a credible regional power that uh, that that was so powerful that its leader was even willing to go to Washington and fight with the sitting U.S. president who was extremely powerful in order to protect his country. So if he was willing to do this to the United States, then Putin figured it was it would make sense to actually listen to what the man had to say. And here what we're seeing, and I think that the reason why it happened now, is not simply that the Biden administration is, is against these because they want to adopt it. They have adopted the exact same pro-Iran, anti-Israel policy that the Obama administration advanced. It's also, that Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid have made it their their signature policy is to end Israel's independent status as a regional power and present Israel as a me too whatever America says we agree power. That was the implication of uh, of Yair Lapid's announcement after his first phone call with Tony Blinken on June 18th that the two sides had agreed to a no surprises policy, that Israel won't surprise the Americans on Iran or on basically anything. So when you when you say that, what you're saying is we're going to give the United States the a, a veto power over what we do, because if you're telling them ahead of time, then they're responsible for what you do. And if they're responsible for what to do, you're doing, then they have a say in what you can do. So and, and this is happening when they're when they're when their policy runs smack dab head on in against our interests. It's just, it clashes directly with our interests. And so there are two parties. One is, uh, is far stronger and is doing something that's contrary to the, the weaker uh, uh, party's interest. And the weaker party is saying, we will not surprise you, which basically means we have surrendered our own interest and laid it down in your hostile hands. Exactly. That's why it's like it's doubly insane because it's always bad for a country that's under threat. And Israel is more under threat than probably any other country in the world. 
it's always a problem when a, when a country that, that faces massive threats and we face them from all directions and they're all very different. There, there are many different kinds of threats that we have to deal with at one and the same time. So it's very difficult or dangerous as a practical matter for Israel to ever give anybody any sort of veto power over its national security strategic decision-making uh, 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 apparatus. Um, but it's even more dangerous, like you said, when you're dealing with a hostile power, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you know, it's we're used to saying is like, a, it's a truth. For generations, you know, Israelis and pro, um, pro-Israeli pro Americans have said rightly that not only do we share common interests, but Israel and the United States also share common values. And when you look at this commonality of interests and values, then it's clear why we're always on the same side. But when you listen to people talking from the Biden administration about critical race theories, they're anti-nationalists, that they are anti-American that they support BDS and all of these other things. And you see that actually the new values that they are attributing to the United States are not the regular values that we've always shared. And, and if, if you're being led by people who fundamentally disagree with the values at the heart, the Judeo-Christian values that have always been at the heart of, of, of America and obviously at, at the heart of Israel, then, then you're dealing with a whole different kettle of fish and, and it becomes much more difficult to coordinate policies. I mean, what does, you know, for leaving aside all of the acrimony about Naftali Bennett and what he did, but and, and even Yair Lapid, who is a nihilist, I mean, you call him a postmodernist, I think mm-hmm. he's just stupid and uneducated, but whatever, and has no understanding that actions have consequences and that they're directly linked. But uh, if you pretend aside all of the set aside all those things and you just take them at their word that their that their intentions are good, um, they, what are the values that they share? What are the interests that they share with Hadi Amma? You know what what interests do they share with a guy who wants to base American policy in the Middle East on supporting Hamas? it's just hard to see it. So if you're going to be saying you know Naftali is supposed to be coming to Washington to meet with Biden. And I don't think that he has a real understanding of just how disconnected at the very basic level the Biden administration is from the traditional commonality of interests and values that Israel has shared with successive American administrations that some have been more and some have been less hostile. But I think, you know, this is a major shift and it's very obviously uh, terrifying, but it's but it exists and it has to be dealt with. Yeah, and 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 the the people running the show in a clandestine way are the Obama people. I don't buy the whole Joe Biden is president thing. I I I don't hear him saying anything coherent. And when he said that the 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 attempts the attempt to 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 uh, demand um, IDs from voters are the worst thing that happened to America since the Civil War, no less. 600,000 Americans were killed in, and now someone will have to bring their ID card. And that's, a, that's it's, it's just, it's, a, it's vacant. It's, 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 there's nothing there. And, and beyond the vacancy, you know, what is, what is Susan Rice's actual 
official uh, post here. It, it, it hardly even matters. She's sitting by the office of, of uh, who, Rob Malley there? I don't, I don't remember. Um, I, I got some tour of the, uh, a virtual tour, of course, of the, the, how the White House is now structures, structured. And, and when you see it at every imported injunction, as opposed to every PR junction, sits an Obama person who is going to reimpose um, behind conciliatory rhetoric, they were going to reimpose all the Obama agenda. And as I've had some occasions to say, the, this agenda is Edward Said's agenda. It's an anti-Western agenda. And, and it, it won't do to call it just communist or to call it just socialist. It is it is post-colonial in the Edward Said sense, in the sense that it that it think that 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 all the other with the others with a capital O are always in the right, and the West needs to humiliate itself, apologize, and renounce the quote arrogance of power unquote. The quote is from Obama. You know, I mean, uh, Mark, Mark Levin just wrote a new book called American Marxism, which I just got delivered from Amazon, so I'll be reading up soon. Um, but he, he makes that argument. And I think, you know, and here, let's just switch for a second to, to the second thing that this government has done wrong, um, uh, which is the UAE and how they're bungling the Abraham Accords and really undermining them. Um, but because I think it's important to note that, you know, if you look at the unrest in Iran, the anti-regime protests that are going on throughout the country. If you look at uh, the Sunni Arab states that are threatened by Iran and how they have, you know, moved towards Israel in over the past decade, um, then you see that the problem here isn't, and also India and how they deal with the world. You see that the problem here isn't specifically Western non or uh, you know against the non-Western. It's Marxists, it's cultural Marxism is how I look at it, against people who have a national interest. You know, Yoram Hazoni, the Israeli uh, political philosopher, wrote a book about nationalism, and he basically broke it into imperialists and nationalists. Um, and you have your own dichotomy in your book about uh, people who are movable and immovable, people who are the jet setter crowd and people who live in their world, in their, in their physical world. And um, so there are a lot of ways of putting together the division, but I think, you know, Israel and America, by the way, obviously, have a lot of people who are rooting for us and our ability to survive as nations throughout the world, because they, you know, share the view that, um, that they have to fight an empire, you know, whether the empire is China, whether the empire is Iran, um, Hell, whether the empire is the EU, you know, they have the sense that the nationalism that it stands at the root of Zionism, at the root of Israel, and, the, and at the root of the United States and the founding documents is something that they can relate to and it doesn't threaten them. And, you know, one of the, and, and so, you know, going back for a second to Netanyahu's speech in May, in March of 2015, before the joint houses, you know, it wasn't just Putin who was watching and, and, and being impressed and, and really changed his perspective on Israel as a result of that speech it was also, of course, the Sunni Arab states uh, in the Persian Gulf, led by the Saudis and the UAE, Bahrain, in conjunction with Egypt, that is their closest ally uh, in North Africa. And, and they, 
and the Levant. And so they 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 started moving much more swiftly towards Israel because initially they had been inching towards Israel as Obama became more and more radical in his pro-Iranian, pro-Muslim Brotherhood, pro-Turkish uh, Erdogan policies and against them and against Israel. But after Netanyahu made that speech, it really gave a push to the burgeoning strategic ties that were forming between these countries on Iran. And then Trump, of course, as you said, he came in, he saw the world uh, eye to eye with Israel really does, you know, the Republicans and some Democrats, I guess, really do continue to maintain the shared values and the shared interests that have always stood at the root of American-Israeli ties. And so he, working in conjunction with Israel, he embraced Israel's new position as a regional power and was working in alliance with us in a, in a whole, you know, in a whole array of issues and across a long, a vast sort of uh, geographic range uh, against Iran and its and its and its uh, proxies in the Middle East. So um, that was and that was what enabled Trump's embrace of these ties was what enabled the Abraham Accords in the end to come to the fore. But they were already and effectively cemented in 2015 after Netanyahu's speech before the Joint House Congress. And here we see too that the administ that the current Bennett Lapid government, Lapid Bennett government or whatever, uh, they're screwing that up too. That their that their idea that they want to uh, link or, or Israel to the Biden administration and follow a Biden administration's lead on all of these things has also made it impossible, I think, or, or for them to value and to understand just that today, in a way, Israel's most important strategic relationship is with the UAE. And so they're destroying it. They're, they're wrecking it. Yeah. Uh, and, and they have, it's not that they have a, a clear alternative strategic vision. They're just, they, and, and this is typical of, of the, a lot of the Israeli establishment, because what I feel is going on is that people are so inexperienced and so uh, devoid of any historical understanding or geopolitical understanding are relaying, relying on our security establishment, which is slavishly buying, bowing down to, to, to the Democrats in America and through all those think tanks and all those other arms of propaganda and uh, I don't know, Dan Shapiro or whoever, the, or, or his colleagues and, and, and the, the whole crowd of this, the, the, the peace process industry has just got its fingers deep inside the Israeli security establishment. And so they're parroting the, the, uh, the, the most flimsy, shallow narrative of, of, the, of the Biden administration um, propaganda. No, I think a, a colleague of mine, Dave Wormser, is actually, he, it, uh, he's at the Center for Security Policy with me in Washington. And we were talking the other day and he was just talking about the parallels between the loss of strategic uh, bearings uh, by the top levels of, of the Pentagon and its similarities to what happened over the past generation, really, with Israel's uh, uh, top security, uh, national security levels. Um, and you see it very clearly today with the whole uh, with the whole critical race theory that has made major inroads into the armed forces of the United States, in the Navy, in the Marines, 
in army training manuals, in recommended book lists that all uh, all uh, naval personnel have now received from the from the uh, commander of all naval operations, and so on and so forth. So that you know they're also crazily indoctrinating U.S. forces uh, with literature that is hostile to the United States of America. And in Israel, we see it. You know, I think we talked about it a bit with uh, Yad Vashem becoming postmodernist and universalist and its message is so dangerous, but they're indoctrinating Israeli uh, soldiers uh, going to, before they take the March of the Living to Auschwitz or when they're in command, lower command courses and they go to Yad Vashem during officer course or whatever, that anybody could be a Nazi, that they divorce everything that happened in Hitler's Germany uh, from German history from European history, from the history of European uh, Christianity, uh, from German paganism, uh, the Green Movement in the 1900s, racism, racist theory, racial theory of the 19th century. They ignore all of it. They ignore every single aspect to it. Negative characterization, caricaturization of Jews, you know, from the, dating back to the time of Jesus. Uh, they ignore all of this and they say, oh, what happened in Germany can happen here. There's absolutely no cultural basis for these claims. There's no historical basis for these claims. There's no there's no factual basis for any of these claims. And yet, just as American servicemen are now being indoctrinated or pushed to believe that there's something inherently evil about them if they come from working class white backgrounds in you know, the heartland, so Israeli forces are being taught before they go to Auschwitz, right, um, for the marches of the living, that they too, that they have to examine themselves. That they not that they have to recognize what happened to their people, but that they have to look at themselves as potential Nazis. And and this kind of moral uh, insanity. I mean, it really is madness, and and it's extremely destructive. Has a horrible impact downstream on the operational capacities and rationality of a lot of people who are who are supposed to be making decisions about what Israel's national interests are and how we preserve them and how we defend them. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is bad news. And then you add to that, you add to that the fact that half of the new government are like pop culture people, particularly our alternative and future prime minister, Yair Lapid, you know, who uh, whose understanding of the world really does match that of what he is, which is like an 11th grade dropout, right? I mean, he never finished high school. He doesn't know anything. He says things that are just stupid. And he he thinks that they sound smart. He made an entire career about sounding smart and actually being dumb. And you get this noxious mix of shallowness and and, and anti-Semitic, really, indoctrination of our forces, the way that's happening in the United States with the anti-American indoctrination. And we've already discussed his speech about anti-Semitism, saying basically that anti-Semitism is any form of hate. So the Tutsi and the Hutus um, and the genocide, there is also anti-Semitism, which is just a flip side of saying that all people are just people and there, are, there is no importance to national identity. So he, he is, he, for a while, he portrayed himself as if he was a right-wing guy, but, but he doesn't even understand that he is now promoting the attack on national identity by means of universalizing 
everything. And, 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 the, and the thing is that our elites make this sound benevolent as if human rights are, if, if we just all sing, imagine with John Lennon, everything will be fine. And, and what, they, what they don't tell us is that every, everything will be fine for the jet set. Everything will be fine for the elites because common people everywhere need the structure of this, of the, of the nation state, because this is the basis of their political power and their ability to control their own fate. In this limitless world that you see, you know, George Soros wrote an essay which, that, that, that was a precursor to all his open society foundations actions later, which is the erasing of borders. And this, this will not equalize us all as citizens. This will equalize us all as immigrants. We will become homeless and nomadic and, the, and, and there will be nothing to anchor our existence anywhere and no way for us to protect ourselves, except if you're rich enough to build walls. If you're rich enough to surround your mansion with security cameras and barbed wire, then you'd probably be safe. But, it, but if you live a society that, in a society that is not bound by solidarity, then you know, from the little scooters that we rent to the security and our ability to enforce the law, all this depends on solid. If you just, if you're just a, if you're just passing through and eating the fruits that 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 someone else had had planted, then you have no sense of responsibility to what is going on. I must say now because because you know I think that one of the subjects rarely discussed is the role of radical feminism in all this is people who you're not in israel so but maybe you saw it on twitter enough there there's a there's a huge case now in the media about some modeling agent who's been sexually abusing or harassing his models and i don't know what exactly he, he did to them but there was a woman raped by an illegal immigrant and beaten so badly that he he broke her ribs and damaged her lungs and it's completely off the radar and the police are doing nothing and the press is saying nothing because this they is they let a, him out of jail actually this woman because she's a nobody she, or, or worse she's one of the deplorables right she's a she's probably a racist and she hates immigrants so so we we were we are all we will, we will sit in studios and discuss i don't know someone um acting inappropriately to a model where this woman was almost murdered and this is completely denied all the women's organization the feminists the the the, the self-righteous um me too people they're just they they just took it off the agenda it's like it's it's mind-boggling and this they happens repeatedly and, and, and they don't care and actually i was going to raise that but i'm glad you raised it first the the the, the woman who was brutally raped in her home in South, in South Tel Aviv by an Eritrean illegal alien in Israel um, that nobody wants to talk about. I mean, there are a couple of things that are important. Galit Distel uh, was talking about it from the podium in the Knesset because nobody in the media is covering this, right? And I saw her impassioned speech where she was talking about it and she started crying. And, and the thing is, is that this woman, uh, you know, she collects bottles. She lives off of the deposits that she returns uh, from bottles to recycling centers, right? That's how she, she's poor. She's dirt poor. Nobody cares about her, right? And everybody cares, on the other hand, about Eritreans because they are the another means that the post-Zionist, the anti-Zionist left in Israel, which now controls the government, uh, is going to undermine Israel as a Jewish state, that they want to give uh, the rights of citizenship 
to illegal aliens from from Muslim countries, but even from any country that entered the country illegally and uh, they're giving them free education. American Jewish liberals are building beautiful schools for their children and so on and so forth. And anybody who calls for them being expelled because they've brought massive crime to, to the slums of, of Tel Aviv and other underprivileged areas is immediately, uh, is immediately attacked as a racist, right? As you said, so here's this poor woman who nobody cares about because she's poor. And anyway, because she was attacked by the wrong person. If she had been attacked by an, a religious Jew, by an ultra-Orthodox Jew, by a settler, you know, then probably people would care and it would be on the front page because it's just like Black Lives Matter. You know, uh, uh, um, my uh, I was talking to a, uh, a, a surgeon from the University of Chicago and he was saying that Black lives absolutely don't matter to the left. Because University of Chicago, he said, if, if all of the, you know, Chicago is like one of the highest murder rates in the United States, University of Chicago's emergency room and operating theater deals with more trauma puncture wounds than any place else in the world because of the high level of bullet bullet wounds. So he said, if the United, if, if, if the areas surrounding University of Chicago are like a donut, then the hole in the middle is the University of Chicago and we get all of the gunshot wounds from all surrounding areas uh, in Chicago. And he said, they don't care. He said, one out of 15 of these people, most of them are, are, are male. Most of them are in their late teens, early twenties. A lot of times they have no idea who they are. They come in one in 15, die on the operating table. One in eight die during their hospitalization. And, you know, but there are other black people who kill them. So you never hear about it. And it's the same thing here. So what happened? Galit said today at the Knesset, she said that the police denied that there was a rape when they were asked by a reporter who got wind of it. And then they didn't arrest him. And then after he published it anyway, after they denied there had ever even been a crime, they arrested the guy. And then five hours later, they released him. This is a brutal rapist because he can't possibly be a criminal because he's an Eritrean. And if you say that an Eritrean rapist is a rapist from Eritrea, who's in Tel Aviv, who's in Israel illegally, then you're a racist. So the police have no interest in enforcing the law. It's the same, of course, against the Arabs. Yeah, and 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 if you if you live in Israel, then you would know that the Israeli press often there there are code words. They don't say Arabs. They say young people, youngsters, um, when when they want to avoid. Uh, mentioning the the ethnicity, and it's exactly the same as it is in America. I've heard this uh, often from on 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 Candice uh, Owens's uh, Owens. um, show, Owens show, um, s- uh, quoting items about about murders and pointing out when and when when they do and when they do not point out point out the race of both the victim and the perpetrator. You know, so I just want to go back for a second to what we were talking about the UAE, although it all sort of blends in, it all it all combines into one another, this this uh, differential way of looking at human beings, this, uh, this complete blindness to the actual problems in this world, because you're too busy attacking your own people and calling them racist. So, you know, the big problem that Israel is dealing with is the Iranian empire. Right, and it's also the same problem that the UAE is dealing with. It's the same problem the Saudis are dealing with. It's what stands at the heart of the the Abraham Accords. So, 
The left hated the Abraham Accords for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go into all of them, but obviously one reason is because they were done by Netanyahu, and Netanyahu is the devil, and therefore any peace deal that he makes is really evil. I think that doesn't that doesn't go to the bottom of it. For they the left the left's agenda in Israel is the occupation. So they think those of them right. who think they are saving Israel from the occupation. I, this justifies any means, and and so the the you, you remember the John Kerry denying no 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 there would be no peace with any Arab country unless we first deal with the Palestinians because the agenda of these people is the two state solution and their leverage is whatever prize we will get after we renounce half of the land. Can of, I just of add one thing? Sure. Can I just add one thing? It goes back to what we were talking about just now. Because I think that at the heart of the so-called two-state solution, it, the paradigm is anti-Israel. And in the case of the Israeli left, the paradigm, the, the, the claim wanting peace, the claim ending the occupation has nothing to do with peace and has nothing to do with the occupation. It has to do with the fact that the Israeli right, that Israeli Zionists, that Israeli nationalists want to maintain our control over Judea and Samaria, our, you know, our national heartland where it all happened, and Jerusalem, which is our internal capital, that the whole concept here is to break the spine of the Jewish character of Israel. So that I think that here, too, it, it is very much related to the non-enforcement of laws towards Arabs. I mean, you know, we just both tweeted out yesterday, I think, that 400 Jewish families reportedly have left the city of Lod since the lynchings in May, they don't want to be part of it. Why? Because the police is not enforcing the laws against the Arabs who are lynching them. So that, you know, if you're raising your children, what are you supposed to do? You don't want to leave Lord, but you also don't, you want them to be allowed to go outside and play without risking death. So, you know, it's, it's a problem. And I think that it's very related. It's part of the same assault on the nation state, it's part of the same assault in Israel by the left, by the post-Jewish left, by the post-national left, by the post-Zionist so, left, on the people that, that are not post-anything. So so I'm not sure I agree because I think there is a there is a Zionist left who which which believes that the problem with the territories is is annexing more Palestinians and endangering the, the Jewish majority. So these people too think that for them to save Zionism, we need the two-state solution. I was one of them. I was never a post-Zionist, as you know. So I once believed in that argument until I, I realized that it, it's, it's, it's mostly a theoretical argument, um, while the security considerations are much more pressing. But there is an argument to be made that, that the two-state solution is a, 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 at least in, a, a, in part a way to save Zionism. Okay, I'm not. I'm not saying that. That I'm, I'm not putting this forward as my the, argument. The, now. The, but the, the, but, the, but the thing is, the thing is that if if you hold this argument, then you may be led to think that you, you the the absolute necessity is to force Israel to get out of the territories, and therefore, if you hold the prize uh, behind the Palestinian veto, then you have a leverage on the recalcitrant Israeli public. Because even if those people are still nationalists, they're not Democrats. They've lost faith in the Israeli electorate, and they're not trying to convince us. They're trying to leverage outside forces in order to force our hand. Um, so, and this goes back to what I 
constantly talk about and probably getting people tired to, to hear this, is that the anti-national crowd is anti-democratic. What we are facing with, the, with these elites is not just that they are anti-national in the name of liberalism. They are anti-democratic also in the name of liberalism. And, and this is, the, this is the, for me, for in my mind, this is the thing we're missing about this discourse. The discourse of these elites is liberal in theory and it's anti-democratic at heart. It does, it, it, and I've said this before, their argument is the, the way they see political problems is how to save democracy from its citizens. From itself. Yeah. From the demos. From, yeah, from, from all these lowbrow, racist, um, illiberal xenophobes. Right. I mean, look, so I just want to, uh, we, have, we have just a few more minutes. So I just want to say exactly what happened with the UAE. What happened with the UAE is that earlier this week, um, well, there are two things. First of all, one of the most important things, I think we talked about it last week, that, uh, that one of the most important deals that was signed between Israel and the UAE was a deal to transit uh, oil from, uh, from the UAE to the Eastern Mediterranean uh, through Israel. So through Eilat and up to Ashkelon port and then go out to Greece and Cyprus and so on and so forth. So um, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, environmental protection uh, minister who's very much opposed Zionist Tamar Zandberg from Meretz and who absolutely hates the Abraham Accord just announced that she's gonna uh, suspend this deal. And the Emirates, uh, the Emiratis are very upset because this was extremely important to them. It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's another venue for them to move their oil and gas. And you know, from Israel's perspective, economically and strategically, first of all, strategically, it's very important for us to maintain our very close ties to the UAE. Just look at the map, see where it is. It's right across the Gulf of Oman from Iran. You know, this is this is a very important state. Just just by looking at the map, doing no further analysis. And you want you want to do that, and then from an economic perspective, when we look at the BDS in the West and all of this insanity going on, it's very clear that Israel's economic future has to be anchored in the region. And the UAE enables Israel to integrate its economy into the Middle East, which is exceedingly important for Israel moving forward. But let's you know, so she goes after that. But then Yair Lapid and his own inimical, inimical, and 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 of course, or imitable and, and uh, shallow fashion, he appointed a political loyalist to be you know, a crony, a donor, to be the, uh, the first Israeli ambassador to the UAE. This fellow who's the head of the hotel association, his, his name is Amir Hayek. So what, what works out? Works out, he announces the appointment and then people do due diligence. They look at the guy's Twitter feed. The guy's Twitter feed is full of denunciations of the Abraham Accords, assaults on the UAE, saying that they're flooding Israel with COVID, that, uh, that, they're, that they're, uh, they're, they're only in it for the F-35s, that, uh, that, uh, that the oil deal with the UAE is an environmental disaster, that there, that there are thousands of bots that claim to be from the Emirates suddenly after the peace was announced so that they could put out stuff on Twitter and it's all fake. So here's this guy who has spent really uh, the better part of the past eight months attacking the Abraham Accords. And he was just appointed to be 
the first Israeli ambassador to the UAE. Now Israelis can read, and that's why the, the why, that's why the media reported on his tweets. But the Emirates can also read, and you know if I were them, and just put yourself in their shoes, they're looking at this saying, "What the hell is going on?" You know, you're blot, you're 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 abrogating one of the, the the most important deals that we signed with you just last October. You're you're bringing in this guy to be ambassador who hates us and who opposes our peace. What are you thinking? And I think that he wasn't thinking. I mean, then he made this inane comment afterward. He, he said, "Foreign policy is made by diplomacy, not by Twitter." What are you even talking about? What does that even mean? You know, f- like that—that's like a, that's like a, a statement that means nothing. You, if 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 it, if diplomacy is made on Twitter. You know, positions are made are made known on Twitter, and the positions that your guy just made known on Twitter is that he hates the UAE, and he doesn't like the peace, and he doesn't value it, and he sees no strategic importance of Israel's ties with the UAE. So everything that this government and and they're doing this, I think, I think Lapid, if he had any you know forethought, which is doubtful, uh, before he appointed his crony to be the ambassador, I think it was that. Oh, the Americans hate the Abraham Accords, and therefore I hate the Abraham Accords. Except, why did the Americans have a reason for hating the Abraham Accords? They hate them because they're bad for Iran, and the Biden administration sides with Iran. So at least their Blinken's refusal to use the term Abraham Accords and their their absolute avoidance of discussing them whenever possible, you know, at least stems from a rational. Interest. They they hate them because they hate Israel. They hate the Sunnis and they like Iran. And Iran doesn't like the Abraham Accords because they're targeting Iran. So that all makes sense. But what's what's the peace excuse? And again, you know, this goes back to he has no rational reason as an Israeli to oppose to oppose the Abraham Accords. None. Only an interest in them. Only an an interest in pursuing them and advancing them and strengthening them. But he can't see it because he's either too stupid or too shallow or too blinded by his, his absolute faith that Israel should put all of its eggs in the American basket and not believe anything that the Americans are actually doing and saying and just trust in his globalist instincts that the left is the best, the left is in charge in America, and therefore, since we're all on the left together, we can all be friends. We are all against hate. Right. Blah, blah, blah. This is this is this is as deep as it goes, and and all the all Twitter is full of jokes about him meeting. He he always you know he he publicizes his meetings on Twitter regardless of what he's saying of how diplomacy is run, and he calls everyone my friend. This foreign minister is my friend, and this and and there are jokes about tweeting about him on Twitter saying he's this is the, the foreign minister of this and that country. And uh, can you take can can we take a selfie? Um, because because this is it, it, for him. It's like a photo op. The whole the whole thing is a photo op. It's just he, be, being a minister or a prime minister is just an honorary job. He wants to be like the homecoming king, and and that's it. That's it. There's nothing else there. Uh, what a disaster! Isn't that great? Hey, it's amazing. So we do have like five minutes before our hour uh, is over. And I, and I did think that there was one little tidbit about J Street that I wanted to share with our, our viewers and our listeners, uh, if, if you don't mind. Is that okay if we give uh, it, uh, oh, it's, it's more It's more than okay. And let us also tell our 
listeners and viewers, if they support J Street, what they really support. Okay, so J Street has long uh, presented itself as pro-Israel and pro-peace, but it's neither pro-Israel nor pro-peace. In fact, what they are anti-Semitic. How did we learn that this week? It's an incredible story. Uh, the, the, is, the Israeli reporter, Barack Levine, who always manages to publish disparaging stories about his country that cause it no end of diplomatic headaches. But guess what? He's a leftist, so everybody loves him. Anyway, so Barack Levine published these cables that he was apparently given by post-Zionist diplomats in the foreign ministry that showed Israel's foreign ministry essentially saying to all the consulate, not essentially, saying to all the consulate generals in America, look, you should work with the pro-Israel organizations, the Jewish ones, the evangelical ones, to try to combat unilateral, you know, Ben and Jerry's boycott of Israel and, uh, and uh, to enforce U.S. laws against BDS, against Unilever. And I may even be overstating what the foreign ministry said, but that was the gist of it. You know, we all agreed that we have to fight Ben and Jerry's. Let's work with the pro-Israel groups, the evangelical pro-Israel groups, the Jewish ones. So uh, Barack Ravid publishes the story. And then uh, J Street gets on the case immediately, as they always do, uh, totally unprompted by Barack Ravid. J Street, the ostensibly pro-Israel Jewish organization, says, oh, all of these Jewish organizations that, are, uh, that have spoken to the foreign ministry about Ben and Jerry's and all of the evangelical Christian pro-Israel groups have to be investigated to see whether they're foreign agents who are criminally liable for not registering as such. So J Street is now pushing this idea that if you are a pro-Israel organization, Jewish or Christian in the United States, that you are and you have any kind of relationship whatsoever, ever spoke to an Israeli diplomat, ever went to an event at the consulate, ever liked Israelis, ever said shalom, you know, anything, <laughs> right? You have to register as a foreign agent of a Jewish state. And if you don't do so, then you have to go to jail. And by the way, uh, this is a real threat because last week, I think it was, one of Trump's advisors was just arrested because he had been representing the UAE or had a, had, had dealings with the UAE. And oh, then Caroline, General UAE Flynn, we, we know how they do this. General Flynn and Turkey, the exactly. whole stupid Turkey story. Right. They're so now using, using Farah using in order it. to, yeah. So, but, but how about no, if but J Street says, if they say, if they say, if J Street keeps saying that they are for Israel, couldn't be, it be used against them too? No, because they're anti-Semitic. They're good, because and, they're good. And, you know, and, and, I mean, it, you can say you're pro-Israel. It's just like the, the chairman of the board of, uh, of uh, Ben and Jerry's, who has this whole thing going back to 2018, at least the, the Twitter snoops have found, of, uh, of calling for BDS against Israel and annihilating Israel and, and long live Palestine and all the rest of it. Um, so she just put out this thing that said she's not anti-Semitic. Well, that's the relief. And who does she base the claim that her uh, boycott against Israel is not anti-Semitic and that she's not an anti-Semite? J Street, Americans for Peace Now, uh, Trua, uh, Habunim Dror, all of these radical left Jewish organizations in the United States who are supporting BDS and supporting Ben and Jerry's. And so they're now proving 
that she's not an anti-Semite because they all think that Ben and Jerry's boycott of Israel is, is terrific. And now again, I think that this is a really big deal because J Street is saying use Farah against American Jewish organizations, against Kufi, against evangelical groups to say that it is a criminal offense to be in contact with Israelis and to support defending Israel and maintaining America's alliance with the Jewish state. And of course, these people are allied with the Biden administration. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that it's very difficult as a practical matter to talk about shared values when you look at Hadi Amar, Maher Bitar, and all of these BDS supporters who are in the administration. And when you look at their ally groups that are pushing, whether it's Ilhan Omar or Jeremy Ben-Ami of J Street, that are pushing this idea that it is criminal, it is a criminal offense to support a strong Israel and a strong US-Israel alliance. Unbelievable. The, the, these are, the, the, uh, we've seen this story in Jewish history before, right? They're trying to, they're trying to join the anti-Semite and get um, and detach themselves from their deplorable brethren in the hope of being accepted by the people who actually hate them. So um, these things don't end well because if J Street think that they'll be exempt from anti-Semitism, because anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. They think they'll be exempt. They don't understand anti-Semitism. You know, you were talking about the walls and how Mark Mark uh, Zuckerberg and all of his globalist friends live behind, you know, in these compounds, right? So two stories. One is that I read today that former California's uh, Senator Barbara Boxer was just brutally attacked in the streets of San Francisco because that's just what happens today when you leave your guarded compound in that city because it has been taken over by lunatics and no law enforcement because you just don't do that, right? Because they're all illegal Eritrean aliens in, in San Francisco. And um, so that's one. And the other one, of course, going back to J Street and all of its uh, Jews, Jew, Jewish uh, allies in, in its war against the Jews. Um, you know, uh, we have a holiday that's uh, widely, uh, it, it's actually the most widely celebrated Jewish holiday in the United States. It's called Hanukkah. And uh, who were the Maccabees? The Maccabees, for lack of a better term, were the ZOA. You know, they were they were the they were the right wingers that everybody hated, who just supported being Jewish and didn't want to, you know, bow down to idols. And who were the people that they were going against? They were going against J Street. And to this day, all of the Jeremy Benamis of the world, you know, they want they they light their menorahs and they say their blessings and they eat their potato latkes. And they and they they say Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas to everybody, and uh, they don't realize that they're actually by doing that, you know, they're 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 showing that the only reason that they exist as Jews is because Jews stood up to also not only to Roman or to Greek anti-Semites, but also the Jewish anti-Semites. Yeah. What you gonna do? So we are too, obviously. That's the point of the show. The Carolyn Glick Millie's News Hour with co-host Gotti Tao. And you guys should all listen and subscribe if you haven't. Subscribe your friends. Subscribe to for your nodding acquaintances. Just do it. See what they say if they get mad at you. 
yeah, it was a mistake. Anyway. And, and say hi to your mom for me because today we haven't seen her. Right. No, she, she got all of her business done ahead of time. She was a little bit embarrassed. I don't know. I kind of thought it was. It was nice. It was, yeah. it was I, I hear surprising. It, you know. <laughs> I hear about it from you. It was nice to see her. So uh, take care there in Chicago. Don't get shot. I hear it's dangerous. And, and, and we'll, keep the, we'll keep the ship afloat here at least until you come back. Okay, great. I'm glad to hear it's big relief. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Carolyn. Bye. Thank you.